Hey Kyle, Nolan here. Just got out of the water after a surf on the morning of my birthday on the west coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. Certainly realize what getting in the water does for your mental health. So pretty blessed to be in a situation to be able to do that up here. Been listening to the show for about a year and a half now. The range of topics that you cover, what you dive into, the questions you ask is awesome. Definitely makes me think more critically about my worldview and what's out there. So yeah, man, really appreciate it. Keep it up. Happy birthday, Nolan. I have yet to make it up to Canada, but it is on the list. That ever-growing list of expeditions. So if anyone else wants to send me a uh, voice memo, you can email it to info at kyle.surf, and I'd love to play it. Just try and keep it under a minute. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and uh, some details about your surroundings. I think that there are a lot of people just like you, and I'm going to guess that you are someone who loves to explore the natural worlds. Additionally, you also love to explore intellectually and spiritually. You have a voracious appetite for knowledge. And if there's any perspective that I have, being the host of this podcast, if there's any view that I might be able to um, impart, it is this. You are not alone. Uh, if you live somewhere where you don't feel that you can connect with others, uh, seek new people because they are out there. And if there's been one lesson that I've uh, received so far from this multi-month road trip that I'm on, <clears throat> it's that there are a lot of fucking cool people out there um, who are tuned in, and the guest of this podcast is one of them. I am uh, on a four-month road trip through Colorado, Wyoming, on, and Montana. Um, been meeting a lot of listeners, still batting a thousand with cool people who <laughs> reach out to me and I meet up with uh, who listen to this show. It's very heartening. And uh, Matt Rott is a surf journalist, uh, badass, big wave surfer, works for Magic Seaweed, and someone who I had to see like in five different amazing places around the world before we finally became friends. I think I first met him in Chile. Then I saw him at this secluded, amazing wave in Africa. Then I saw him out at Mavericks and I posted something on Instagram saying that I was in Colorado. Um, when you listen to this, I'll be up in Wyoming, um, in probably the Jackson Hole area, and then up into Montana. So uh, if, if you guys are in any of those parts, maybe around Bozeman or Jackson Hole, hit me up. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. But anyway, I, I posted something on Instagram, and uh, Matt was like, dude, I'm in Colorado. Let's hang out. And I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do this. So we went on a camping, climbing, biking trip um, with he and his girlfriend, Kilty. Had a blast, and then we recorded this podcast out under the stars, um, which was uh, pretty darn cool. There was wildlife occurring in this podcast. Um, but Matt is, Matt is a badass. He's super smart, and he's very... Um, He's very ninja-like in the way that he travels the world and seeks out new waves. So um, I got pretty high during this podcast. We meandered a little bit, but then um, 
midway through, we got into real applicable tactics for getting credit cards and gaming the banks for airline miles, um, as well as how Matt um, uses Google Earth to seek out badass new waves. Um, He's a true searcher, and uh, it's rad to be able to connect with people like that on this show. I feel sometimes like I could travel forever, um, and the only thing that keeps me from that is this sense that sometimes I'm unmoored, that I'm kind of just wanderlusting around. And when I go home, what I find really is um, a consistent morning routine. So as much as possible on this trip, I've tried to keep a consistent morning routine with me. And the first thing that I do every morning involves one of the sponsors of this podcast, RPM Training Company. I've used their workout equipment for years And just about every morning, I do a short workout. And I keep it short to um, not give myself any excuses not to do it. So the workout that I do is 16 minutes. I set an interval timer on my phone for a two-minute timer. And I do 15 kettlebell swings – or no, 15 burpees, 20 kettlebell swings. Um, And then that usually takes about a minute and 10 seconds to complete. And for the rest of the time, I do use a jump rope to keep my heart rate up. The jump rope is um, the the piece of workout equipment that I'll take with me on every single trip. Um, And it's so damn useful. And RPM makes the best jump rope in the world. Um, I highly recommend that you get one to incorporate it into your workout routine. I also use their fitness shorts, which are freaking just so comfortable and great for working out. Um, But I use the jump rope as that the rest of that timer runs out to keep the heart rate up. And I got to say like I'm not a workout guy. I don't I mean I guess I am, but I don't identify as a workout guy. I identify as someone who you who wants functional fitness so that when someone like Matt hits me up and is like, "Dude, you want to go mountain bike some epic hills in Colorado?" I can be like, "Fuck yeah, I'll do this." Um, and it doesn't take much to keep that fitness level up. So again, I do 16 minutes put on an interval timer, and I will continue to give you um, workouts along with this sponsor. But if you want to get a jump rope, if you want to get some of their equipment, um, you can go to rpmtraining.com. Just click the link in the the description below and type in the code name KYLE10, and you will get 10% off your first order. That's KYLE10. Um, Also, along with fitness, I believe in an intellectual journey. And this episode is also brought to you by my box of goodies, which is a subscription service that I offer where once a month I will send you a book that I love as well as some Santa Cruz medicinals CBD tincture. I use the tincture before I go to sleep. Um, and it helps me with sore muscles. And if you want to support this podcast, get some reading in your life, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies and get a book from me every month along with some Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD. Or if you want to get the CBD on your own, don't worry about it. Just go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10, get 10% off your order. Finally, dare I say the coolest fucking sponsor in the world, the Nell Newman Foundation. They supported the Motherfucker Awards, which was, dare I say, a an iconoclastic idea, um, and they are now supporting this podcast. They fund a lot of really good nonprofits around the world, and I would like to connect you with some because volunteering is, um, I think, the social fascia that keeps 
society together in a lot of part in a lot of ways. It's about building empathy, supporting people and causes that you believe in, and that's that's what keep, that's what keeps it all together. And the organization that I'm going to support uh, this month is Save the Waves Coalition. Save the Waves. Um, protects coastal ecosystems around the planet. And here is a quick message from their founder, Nick, not founder, executive director, Nick Strong Svetich. Hey, Kyle, this is Nick from Save the Waves calling in here. Uh, As you know, Save the Waves is dedicated to protecting surf ecosystems around the world. And uh, we have some pretty good news from the place where you learned how to surf in Santa Cruz, Cowles Beach. For over 10 years, it's uh, routinely been classified as California's dirtiest beach. And thanks to our efforts, along with our partners at the city and county of Santa Cruz, we've been able to bring the bacteria and contamination levels way, way down. And this year, finally, it has been uh, taken off the list of Heal the Bay. So our efforts are actually bearing fruit. And uh, it's nice to have some good news to share every now and again amidst the horrendous news that seems to be surrounding us on a daily basis. So thank you for your support as an ambassador. And we're also really thankful for the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting us. And if you want to learn more about Save the Waves, uh, go to savethewaves.org. Without further preamble, please sit back, relax, look up at the stars, and welcome to the show, my friend, Matt Rote. Matt Rott, not in the house. We're out in nature. We have a cooler as a table, and we're sitting in camp chairs looking at a bunch of uh, – what trees are those? Some sort of pine trees pine with trees aspens interspersed. Deep in Colorado, and we've been mountain biking the last few days, and I have – been having a grand old time with you, my friend. It's been pretty fun. It's been very fun. Yep. Yeah. This was kind of a random encounter. I was in Colorado and posted something on Instagram. Yep. And you happen to be in Colorado as, as well, which is random because I tend to only see you in surf destinations around the world. Yeah, I don't know. Only. Not just 10. I think only we see each other in surf yes. destinations. Yeah. yeah. Like radical ones, yeah. too. I'm like, hey, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect waves and Matt. And... Far away from everything. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. You, um, I want to start at the beginning, Matt. Where, when did you get into surf journalism? Well, I was living out in Micronesia for 15 years or so. And during the off season, I'd be traveling with my ex-partner, who is also my photographer. And we started going to really random places that nobody else was doing at the time, like India and Alaska. And this was 15, 20 years ago. Looking for waves. Looking for waves, traveling. Like, we carry boards with us. We carry other gear. And we'd end up surfing, and we scored a bunch of photos. And so I was, well, I guess before that, I was, like, sending letters to the editor at Surfer Magazine. And they started having me do little editorials. And then when we started getting shots, um, I was like, wow, we could actually make some real articles. And I did a trip in Alaska that ran in Surfer's Journal. And I realized people would actually run the stories I was writing and so then for the next five years, I just was hammering away, trying to meet editors, getting rejected a lot, sending stories. But we always had interesting photos from places no one else was surfing. 
And then, yeah, just sort of built from there where we were running stories in like numerous different countries. So we'd run in the U.S. and then Australia and then go to Europe and run there. And then eventually, um, Surfline and Magic Seaweed took me on as staff. Right. Would you submit articles that coincided with the photos? Yeah, definitely. Like the... The photos would have never run without the story, but the stories would have never run without the photos. Mm. Yeah. And and did you grow up as a writer? Well, I've always written for fun and re- I read voraciously when I was young and I think that contributed to that. And then I taught English for 10 years in where, high school. Where where? In Micronesia. In Micronesia. So I taught 2 years 5th and 6th grade and then 8 years in high school. And so I was basically teaching literature and journalism right. or writing. Wow. And then yeah. and then when you were like, what was it when you were like, okay, I want to actually do this as a surf journalist? Was it that you were like, I want to dedicate my life to traveling around the world chasing waves? Or was there someone who you saw that was like a real mentor of yours or someone you looked up to? Uh, I mean, I was already traveling extensively. We would do six to nine months per year in Micronesia during the school year and just surfing our brains out more than teaching and then travel during the rest of the time. And I just thought, I had stories to tell, and I like telling stories. And if it helps pay the travel, that's great as well. And I kind of looked at—I can't remember his last name. It was, his name was Shane. He used to write for Surfer Magazine. He rode for Quicksilver, like Waterman's Edition, Shane McIntyre maybe or something. And okay. he wasn't like pro-level surfer, but he surfed well enough to get shots. And he told really interesting stories back in the 90s, early 2000s. And I kind of looked at his model, and I was like, well— He's not doing that anymore. Maybe I could be like that, you know, doing adventures with surfing, sort of like thinking man, like ideas and articles and Mm. I don't know, it just kind of worked. When you're going on your trips, you always think of it like, okay, this is a story that I may want to tell, like pulling little details out of the trip as, as it happened. Or did that start happening like when you actually started getting jobs? Yeah. Well, I wasn't getting jobs for like five years. It was all, um, on spec. Like, but you would still write the story. But I would still write the stories. And sometimes they'd run and sometimes they wouldn't. But I'd say the first year I was just going where I wanted to go and doing stories. And then as I started getting published more and like realized you could make a decent living with this, then I started not necessarily planning trips around stories, but like you said, looking for angles and like little nuances that I could talk about while I was traveling. What's an example? Oh, I mean, we were... I got a well. I got a free ticket to India because I was telling you before about the credit card situation. And one of the banks that I used offered you a bunch of free miles if you opened a bank account. And so I opened a bank account, got free miles, decided to go to India. Had no idea that there was waves in India, and my my layover was in Malaysia. I had no idea there were waves in Malaysia, but we took boards anyways. We ended up scoring like a kilometer long left hand sandbar in Malaysia, super fun for nose riding, and met the most excited, nicest, surf-stoked people we've ever met who get swelled two to three months a year out of the South China Sea, and then they're skunked the rest of the year. And I ended up doing a story on them, went back twice, took one of them to Australia. He met Tom Wagner and interned under him. We did a big shoot on that. And it's all, it was unexpected, but then as soon as I get there, you start meeting people and you're like, well, your story's amazing. You're doing things <laughs> yeah. that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Yeah. And it was pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what the story's going to be until you get on the ground. Then you're That's like, it. holy shit. Like n- none of you, like 
like most people just don't know you you exist. How yeah. is that possible? And not only did nobody know they exist, but I mean, we met like the only shaper in Malaysia, the only surf filmmaker in Malaysia, the three pro surfers in Malaysia, <laughs> and they're all one little community, and they just accept us like we're family. And next thing you know, we're doing trips with them. You know, and like that was unexpected. I literally just had a three day layover in Kuala Lumpur. And I thought, oh, where's their waves? And then I Google searched and found a wave. And we went there and it was the epicenter of Malaysian surfing that most people still don't know exists. You know, it's so, <laughs> so weird. radical. Yeah. Oh, wow. When you set out on your freaking wanderlust, I don't know if it's wanderlust, but just journeyman, like you want to go see the world. Do you did you set any like specific goals like things you're like all right in this lifetime like I'll I'll put it this way you live life with a lot of uh, ferociousness like you want to get out of that's the right word you you get after it yeah because it's short and you you realize that it's short so you go after it aggressively Um, like when you started this when you started traveling most of the year were you like okay like this is the lifestyle i want to lead did you was it like i want to see 40 countries or was it like i want to surf the best wave in the world oh i think i wanted to surf really good waves with nobody out obviously i think we all do i also wanted to see a lot and i think every year i i figured this is probably the last year it's going to last you know, before, and before it really blows up before, before I grow up or before I no longer have the ability to travel like this or before the world changes. And so I'd go as hard as I could. And then the next year would come around and be like, well, this is probably the last year. So I better go really hard. And that's been like <laughs> yeah. 18 years, yeah. you know, and we're still <laughs> but you, going. But do you still think that you're like, okay, this could be the last year or do you, do you just kind of set that up as a mental frame for yourself? Like, um, you know, it's not real, but you still want that. I don't think it's the last year, but every year there's like certain support that I have that allows me to do what I'm doing and that might disappear. And if it does, I'll have to tone it down. I'd still be traveling and chasing adventures, but it wouldn't be like every other week jumping on a plane or disappearing into the woods, you know? And so I don't think that it will ever stop, but it might not be at the level that it is right now. And I think even the last few months with the pandemic has been an example of that. Like, Sometimes I get so exhausted because I'm zooming around so much and I think, oh, I just want to stop. And then I tell myself, well, what if you can't do it next year? And then for the last three months, I couldn't do it. And I was thinking, wow, I'm pretty glad I didn't stop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a big difference between almost going on a trip and going on a trip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it takes a level of um, just going after it and pushing through a lot of pain and suffering because people romanticize travel, but there is a lot of pain and suffering associated with it as well. You know, a lot of people are, they tell me like, Oh, I would love to live your lifestyle. And the first thing I tell them is, well, you could, I mean, I, when I first started doing this, I was living on 10 or 15 grand a year, but you're, you're, traveling. you're just a credit card ninja. Yeah. You know, where you like using the mile system to be able to fly more and, but on the other hand, um, yeah, they do romanticize it and they think, oh, it's like this perfect life. And But most of the people that are talking to me about that, if they came along on one or two trips, they'd be done. <laughs> be like, you I know? don't want to sleep on my shoe anymore. Yeah. Like they don't want to be dirty. They don't want to be uncomfortable. But then that being said, anytime I feel 
a little dirty or a little uncomfortable, I think to myself, I mean, God, look what everybody else is complaining about. They're in cars for an hour, going to an office, working eight hours in a car on the way home, and then maybe they get one adventure on the weekend. And my worst days are like I'm stuck on a boat for 40 hours in Africa and I'm tired. Right. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty good still. How do you get work done on these trips? Like, bring me into, like, one of these situations when you're on, like, what's a crazy surf trip you've been on where you're having to also work? I think, actually, it's interesting you ask that because if I'm traveling by myself, it's easy. Like, I, I know when the tides are good. I know what I want to do. Or if I'm not surfing, maybe I'm doing something else. I know when the weather's good. And then I can make my hours. But when I'm traveling with pros and doing a story on them, and I also have to keep up with my clients back home because I'm doing a lot of work as an editor and as a ghostwriter. And they want it now. Like if you're yeah. going for a swell, like you're working for Magic Seaweed, that's okay. We need it now. Like what is the, bring, bring me into one of those situations. Actually there, Magic Seaweed and even Surfline are pretty good with letting me do what I want to do. Um, I, I'll tell them, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going. Like you're going to get a story. You're not going to ever know where I went, but if you want the story and they want it, and they're pretty cool with it, but it's my other clients. Like this morning, I got a message from a lady who I write for, and she's like, I need a speech immediately about this for a meeting. It's in 30 minutes. This is outside of the surfing That's outside industry. of surfing, yeah. Right. And I'm just thinking, like, you know my lifestyle. You know I might not be on the internet for the next three days. Why are you asking me for a thing 30 minutes from now? But then if I'm not delivering, then I'm going to lose her as a client. And that's all of them, you know? That's right. Yeah. So what was a swell that you chased and like a story that you, that you wrote about? I just want to want you to bring me into that world a little bit. Let's think about a recent one. Sure. Um, yeah. So I've been going actually to a zone that I've seen you at a few, uh, once or twice. Yep. Special wave. Yep. And I'd heard rumors that that area had other waves and I decided, okay, I'm going to go into opposite season and go see what we've got. And I talked to Nacho Gonzalez, and he told me, oh, yeah, I've been in that area. There's some potential. And I wanted to take somebody. I didn't know who to take. Um, and it was a left-hand point break, which is pretty much my last, my least favorite wave. It's like the last thing I'm normally going to chase. <laughs> left-hand point break. I like right-hand slabs, you know? But it was a slabby left-hand point. And I asked Cliff Capono to come with me. Yep. And he's, he's, a, he's a podcast alum. He's been and, on here a couple times. And a legend. And a legend. Know? Oh, I went down to Mexico with Cliff and Kyle Boothman last summer. Scored. Positive vibe warrior. I know, because he told me to come on that trip with him, and I didn't. <laughs> and then I saw the footage, and I, I was it. pretty devastated. That's good. And then he ended up bringing a young kid named Noah Mizuno, a goofy foot, who we thought it'd be cool to take him somewhere new. And is, So you know how long it takes to get to that corner of the world. That's like... 35 hours and we're you know we're living in lounges and that's something we've talked about in the last couple of days like how to work the lounge system yeah, for free uh, we're going to talk about that and so i'm working anytime i'm in the lounges i'm working getting food and a shower and then working because i have to keep up with clients at home and then on the plane you got to sleep as much as you can but i'm still working because i'll usually download work so i can work while i'm flying we must have flown 25 hours and arrived, and our local contact picked us up. We were super, dev like, ruined because we hadn't slept. Then we jump on a boat for uh, 10 hours, and we get to where we're going, and it's flat, just completely flat. <laughs> so we're, like, 50 hours in, and these guys, had, like, Cliff kind of, we've done a few trips together, and if I tell him we're going on a trip, He'll come with me because he knows I researched the shit out of it. 
and that my strike rate is pretty good. And But the young kid that was with him, he had never traveled with me. And we got there and he literally almost got back on the boat and sailed back to the airport and left after 50 hours. He was so grumpy and devastated. And I understand because I'm just doing it for the adventure. But these guys have careers that are, you know, that depend on them scoring. And mine, mine does too, but it's not like my only career. Sure. And Cliff sat him down and he's like, I could tell Cliff was bummed, you know? And I'm like, well, I just going to edit some documents for this lady in, <laughs> yeah. in the mainland. And, um, so there's this point that we're trying to score and we looked at it and it wasn't working. And we wandered over to the other side of the area and we found this beach break that nobody had talked to us about. We'd only heard about the point and it was small. It was like one to two foot, but it looked really good. I was like, come on, guys, we just got to, like, be positive about this. <laughs> so we go back to our hotel. I do a little bit more work, and then we throw boards And this in. is for other clients? Like, you're not thinking about how to write this story I mean, the right whole now. time there, I'm thinking about how to write a story about getting skunked, basically, because right. we're getting skunked. So are you, you know? pulling details out, like, what, as you're in the field and, and Cliff, like, drops to his knees and curses the wind? Or are you like, ooh, that's a good detail. I'm you definitely going to use that. I don't take notes, but... Like, I don't write notes, mm-hmm. but I definitely notice things, and I remember, like, I want to write about this. I want to talk about this. Right. And, Do you yeah. have a, just a little notepad, or you do it on your phone? No, it's all in my mind. Hmm. And I don't know why that is. It's probably not very efficient, but I start to write stories in my head long before I put it down on paper, and it becomes like an obsession. Like, you have to eventually get it out, or it's like you've got to vomit it out, you know? Or else yeah. it bothers you, and you can't sleep at night. And But then, sometimes you don't know what the angle is going to be. Like... I had an angle in mind when we went on that trip and ended up being completely different when I ended up writing it. Obviously, because you're getting skunked. Well, we got skunked for about 12 hours, and then we decided to go back and look at it in the evening, and boom, it's five foot, like Hawaiian five foot, so 10 foot faces, as good as beach break gets. None of us have ever surfed a better beach break. We don't have fins and boards. We haven't bought any food, <laughs> and we end up surfing for four days, like 12 hours a day. And by the third day, we're making And it's just you guys out in the water. Well, that's another story. We'll come to that in a second. But we end up eating birthday cake sandwiches because it's either Noah or Cliff's birthday. And we bought a chocolate cake and we have bread. And that's literally the only food we have. (laughs) And we we can't do anything. We have to just surf. So we're eating birthday cake sandwiches, like loaves of bread with birthday cake in it. And we're completely unprepared. And we hadn't planned ahead properly. I think in the in the short term, we hadn't planned ahead properly. And then in the meantime, we meet these four French guys who are on the completely opposite side of the world. And they're looking at us just totally mad-dogging us. And we're like, how is there anybody here? Because our local contact told us no one's ever surfed this wave. Turns out these guys have been coming once a year for 10 years and keeping it a big secret. And it's fickle. I mean, it probably only breaks three or four They've been serving the beach break. They've been serving the beach break. Wow. Never never the point, just the beach break. And I wouldn't think that they'd be scoring every time they're coming because you'd have to chase a swell. You can't just rock up. But they clearly had just rocked up with diving gear and boards, and we ended up scoring. Um, and they, at first, they were kind of mad-dogging us because they recognized Cliff. And they're like, oh, God, pros are here. Like, this is going to ruin our, our little dream. And then they came over to us and chatted with us, and they're like, we'd really appreciate if you didn't tell anyone about this place. And that was when the seed for what the story actually became started like getting planted in my head as I'm thinking, 
it's not these guys' business if people come and surf this wave. There's local people here with no money, like nothing, no tourism. They have nothing. And it should be their decision if their resources are used. But, of course, they don't understand the value of the resource. Right. And so Cliff and I are having big talks about this. Like, what's the responsible thing to do? Um, on the one hand, you've got these guys who are acting selfishly. And us, too, we don't want to tell people where it is because yeah. we're going to go back and score it again, you know? <clears throat> on the other hand, you've got our local guides who are probably the biggest surf explorer in the area. And they are financially stable let's put it that way and so they don't need to blow up the surf industry or like the surf tourism industry there to survive but they empathize with the local people in this area which is actually quite far from their home and they know that this could benefit the people but on the other hand they've seen what surf tourism has done around the world and it's usually bad like usually you know i mean look at neos or like bali it's good in some ways, but then there's trash everywhere and there's drug problems. And so they don't want to see that happen. And so I'm sitting there thinking and, about... And waves get so crowded that they're not fun anymore. Exactly. It doesn't and, matter how good the wave is. they're not valuable anymore. Yeah. I mean, sure, yeah. like, look, Cura or Snapper, some of the best waves in the world... But how often are people really like, oh, let's – oh, my gosh, there's a snapper swell. Let's fly over there halfway around the world. Like I I would love to surf that wave, but there's a million and a half people out there. Exactly. It's a far different experience than finding your own wave that's exactly like that with three of your buddies out. Yeah, I mean and that's very special, especially in these – you know, at this time in history where we've already discovered almost everything – and then you do kind of have these moments where, well, we just found something brand new, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking like in the short term, we hadn't prepared properly for that trip. We got there and we were bummed and then immediately we were stoked and we're eating sandwiches that are going to poison us. <laughs> like we're going to get sick, guaranteed, because we're just eating sugar bombs. But we have to because we've been forced into this situation where we can't stop now. You know, and then I'm looking at the infrastructure there and I'm looking at the idea of, you know, what if these people do want to establish surf industry and yet they don't have the infrastructure prepared. They haven't prepared in the long term for the ramifications of what's going to come. And I'm starting to like find parallels between us eating Cliff's birthday cake and these guys going for the thing that they need because they need money right now. They have nothing or that they want. They want sweets. They want something that's going to give them what they see on television, and yet, like, it's going to make their culture sick unless you do it correctly. Yeah. And that ended up being what the story was about, was whose job is it to decide that a brand new wave that no one's ever seen before, does it stay secret? And it's basically our privilege as wealthy jet setters that we, you know, wealthy being relative, if you can fly away on a surf trip, you're wealthy Yeah. compared to everyone else in the world. Or is it... The, the local people who have no concept of the value of surfing, but also the dangers of surf tourism? Or is it, for instance, our guide who showed us this wave and has been going to it by himself and understands the surf industry because he's lived, you know, in California and in Portugal and he's seen what happens. But at the same time, he doesn't really want to benefit from it. He wants to see the local people benefit from it. And I didn't have an answer because the point of the story wasn't to give people the answer. It was to ask the question. Right. Yeah. And you didn't show where it was. Obviously, because yeah. that's not my 
it wasn't my decision. I was leaving that decision to the people who are the true stakeholders environmentally, um, fiscally. You know, it's their kids who are going to be affected by whatever happens. Yeah. 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 I did a story a long time ago about the adverse effects that tourism was having in Nicaragua. Because on one hand, it was bringing a bunch of money in to certain parts of the community. Uh, on the other hand, as you said, it brings trash in. Well, you look at Bali, it brings prostitution in, it brings drugs in. It brings in a lot of times some of the worst parts or cheapest parts, should I say, of Western society. Mm. Like it's it's not necessarily that that uh, developing country or that surf spot that's – you know, they've been living – more or less the same way for the last couple hundred years, um, you know, what do they do? They really benefit from that. Like if you look at Kuta Bali right now, okay, there's a ton of money going into Kuta Bali. What is the like life satisfaction rate of locals in Kuta Bali now? Yeah. Like, did it make is it was it way better than a hundred years ago? I wonder, right? Well, because it's essentially just consume. Like what goes into a lot of these cultures, these new ones, it's it's consumerism and capitalism. Yep, and right? the worst parts of our society, and the worst parts of our society, right? But I think the struggle is: is it for us to decide what's best for them? Because I would, I think we can agree. Like we look at these places that have been blown up and developed in ways that seem irresponsible or maybe premature. Um, and we're like, well, I wish it wasn't like that. I think that people probably were better off when life was simpler. Um, but then that also is coming from us who our country has already done all of that development and we enjoy the, the perceived benefits of that. And is it our place to tell people you were better off before we brought all this money into your culture and also brought in drugs and prostitution and trash? And- yeah, the thing is that the money doesn't always go – It most of the time doesn't go to good social programs, right? So I, so like the story that I did in, in Nicaragua was sort of a solution because there's this um, group down there called Project Wu, Wave of Optimism. They're super cool. Um, anyway, what they did is they realized like, all right, Playa Colorado's is changing really quickly and there's a ton of money coming in here. Where do we want to funnel this money? Is it just going to be like, where do the locals want to, right? So there was a guy who had been living down there for a while and he started holding these meetings where all the locals would like come into the church and then to ask, what do you need? Like, what is the thing in your community that you would like? And uh, turned out that, that the real big issue right in Playa Colorado's is that the kids would go to elementary school there and the high school was in town. And they never had transportation to get to high school from elementary school, so they would just drop out, right? So they, so this this group, Project Wu, bought a bus for the community to be able to ship kids from Colorado's to the local high school there. And, like, those kinds of stories are pretty darn cool, in my opinion, right? Like, where you're using that money in more intelligent ways that will benefit locals long term. They are, and unfortunately, I think they're pretty rare. Right. It's interesting you said um, that the money doesn't necessarily go to social programs. The reality that I've seen from traveling to most anywhere that's been surfed, you know, 
been a lot of places. The money doesn't go to locals mostly. Right. A small amount does, but most of it goes to foreign investors. Totally. Who came in to chase the waves or they... they yeah, it goes into an, expat, an expat's fucking surf hostel. Exactly. Or you look down at the points in southern Mexico where you have to pay to surf yep. those waves. And you're like, oh, it's it's going to the local community because that's the argument they make. But re- really, it's not being spread out. Who's who's guaranteeing that that money is being spread out? It's no, going it's to going a to couple, a few people. A couple people. Yep. And when it is an expat who's benefiting from surf tourism or any type of tourism, I think there's even more danger there because they're not truly invested in that area. When the place gets ruined, which inevitably it will and to some extent – Depending on your definition of ruination, but you know when a place when the when the pollution goes through the roof because now you have thousands of tourists coming and there becomes a drug problem and a prostitution problem, they can just fly back home and go find another paradise to exploit. And a lot and of then, times they do, and they do, yeah. and the local people are they can't leave. They don't have the means to leave. They don't. Have, it's their home, and they're left with all of the ramifications of our addiction for traveling. And that's – those should be the people who make the decisions, not the people who can just come, exploit, and then leave when it's no longer their paradise anymore. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, th- there's a model for this. It's called Butler's Curve of Tourism. You heard about this? No. Nope. You'd love this. So Butler's Curve of Tourism models the path of tourists from a place being undiscovered to a few early expats getting there and then there's this spike where the community starts to cater to tourists and they start to build industry catering to you know usually white people and then there is this drop off usually in um i believe it's in in economic value and people i would need to look into that but there is this drop off point basically because of what you just said that spots get ruined and yeah, and then what about when something happens on a global scale like we just saw? I mean, the U.S. is an example. We've become largely a service-based um, nation. Like most of the jobs in the U.S. are no longer industrial or production. They're services. And look, we have 15 to 20 percent unemployment right now. Well, what about this area that we were talking about that you and I have you know, bumped into each other and where I went again? That place runs almost exclusively on tourism. Right. And now you have an entire population of a country that has no income. Yeah. Because, you know. No income and no fucking food. Because it's been, because it's just being imported from Coca-Cola because you have multinational corporations that try and teach these people that it's going to be better for them and safer for them if they get, if they stock their shelves with fucking Lay's chips and Doritos and Pepsi. All of which is addictive. Yeah, and making them fat. Yep. Interesting. I talked to a kid from – I actually did another story on a, a local surfer in that area. <clears throat> when the pandemic started and the disease finally entered that country, he and his girlfriend, they heard that they were going to shut down the beaches. So they disappeared and ended up going into the desert and camping for 43 days before they were captured by the police. And, you know, they were fishing, living off the land as best you could. And – then the police captured him and took him back to the city and forced him to be there. And they literally live 50 feet from an ocean and they're not allowed to fish. Yeah. So here you have people that have no income anymore because we have a global crisis, economic and health. And they have unlimited food source 
50 feet from their door and they're not allowed to get it. They have to go to the store and buy imported food from Europe in the U.S. and Australia, which is, of course, making us wealthy and making them unhealthy. It's, it's so wild. It's pretty it's, gnarly. I mean, it's weird to think about how you will go in deep into southern Mexico and there will be Coca-Cola banners on every store. Hmm. Like, they, we just take that for being normal. Like, wait, why is an American company that's just – it basically just serves you a product that will make you as fat as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, there's Like, no- we're going to serve you sugar in liquid form, which, by the way, enters your system in a different way than solids. So if you want to eat a chocolate bar, you're all good. But lay off the fucking squirt, bro. Yeah. I mean, I mean a can of soda basically is has as much sugar in it as if you just put – dry granulated sugar in the can right it's crazy so wild yeah um but yeah isn't that you've traveled all around the world like seeing places change and evolve or or devolve um you're kind of at the forefront of in a lot of places you see it you're i mean you've you're going to places and seeking them out because you're a ninja on google earth like 10 years 15 years before most people will see it so it's almost like i mean i'm kind of putting words in your mouth but like you see these potential futures for places yeah and it's a struggle because on the one hand uh i could go there and just have an adventure and leave and in in a way i'm exploiting that area matt there's a wild fox to your to your i just saw it walk past it's walking past there's a wild fox walking down it's looking looking at us us. That's so sick. That's the third one we've seen in three days. Yeah. Rad. <laughs> I love podcasts on the outside. In the middle this of the forest. The best. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, multinational corporations. Oh, boy. Yep. No, yeah. If I'm, I, sh- I show up somewhere that's you know, not been surfed because that's the goal, obviously. Yeah. It's to yeah. find good waves in a place that's... Will, will you... I don't... You know... Sorry. Yep. I, I, I want to just... We're going to get into that, but like... Finding the wave as are you willing to talk about any of your tools that you oh, use? Oh yeah, of course. And Kilty, who's my girlfriend, who's sitting right here watching us, she can tell you too. I was just telling you a little while ago about one of the places I'm searching out that I've found, and I was up till two in the morning for like what three weeks straight, and she'd just be looking at me like you're an idiot, you know, like why aren't you coming to bed? And but yeah, I'm on Google Earth a lot. Um, I have a network around the world of people who know what I'm looking for that's getting bigger and bigger. And I I think that I've – well, I'd like to think that I've developed a reputation for integrity and that I'm not going to exploit or blow up a place that shouldn't be blown up. So I get little tidbits, you know, like maybe a rumor here or like a tip there. And then I spend hours on Google Earth. Um, so these and, contacts, <clears throat> these you know, friends of yours around the world, they know that you're like, okay, you're gonna, I'm going to write a story – but do my best to conceal the location of well, this place. Well, not necessarily. They know that I'm going to come and when the right swell arrives. They know that if I do write a story, it will, first of all, be hopefully to the benefit of the local people. And second of all, I won't, um, I won't reveal where it is. But I'd say 30% of my trips I never write a story about. Hmm. And then, like I said, Magic Seaweed and Surfline has been pretty good about that. There's been times where there are, a little dirty, especially like if they help me fund the trip, which is why now it's more of a situation where I just have a budget and it's up to me what I do instead of me saying, oh, here's this epic opportunity. I need four grand. And then I finish it and I'm like, oh, by the way, 
it turned out when I got there that one of my friends discovered that wave five years ago and I can't write about it. Right. You know, or the local people decided they don't want exposure and I can't write about it. That doesn't go over so well. Right. But they also understand that it, that's my that's my program, you know. Like I'm not going to exploit what I don't think should be – I don't want to exploit. But right. I think anytime we show up somewhere as tourists, we're exploiting to a point. The idea is if we can bring as much benefit as we gain, that'd be nice. I mean look at Crested Butte. Yeah. Like we're sitting in Colorado right now and there's a beautiful little town and there's a ton of wilderness around it that's largely being maintained because of the tourism dollars that it brings in. 100%. And that's – ideally that's how it works, you know. But it's not always how it works and especially when you're – I find the U.S. so interesting, you know, because we are quick to tell other countries, like, you need to stop chopping down your forests. And yet we've chopped down shitloads of our forests. And we've gained benefit from that financially, but we've also destroyed the environment. But then when other countries are ready to do it, we're like, well, you know, that's not responsible. Sure. Uh, It depends who's in charge. And I think there are more and more people these days who have values besides just maximizing profit and power. But for the most part, those who are in power are those who are seeking power. And so it's rare to find the people who are actually doing the right thing. Mm. Yeah. So what tools do you use, like when you're staying up till 2 in the morning trying to find a new wave? Yeah, so definitely Google Earth. Um, I'm using a lot of swell models. Like, uh, I mean, models, buoys. You can find local buoys in places that you wouldn't think they exist. There might not even be any buoys there. There's just virtual buoys that somebody built for, like, the shipping industry or something of that nature. Hmm. Um, Bathymetry charts, which you can get from sailing apps. So you can start looking at, like, all right, so here's Skeleton Bay in Namibia, and the ocean changes depth at this level, this far out from the sea, you know, from the shore. So you're looking for deep water outside the shore? I'm looking for similar characteristics to waves that I know are very good. Hmm. So if I can compare this new sandbar that I found that I think might be good, but what if it's a burger and not a barrel? So then I look at two or three waves that we've confirmed are draining below sea level barrels. And if I look at the gradient and the change in the bathymetry and it's similar, well, then it might be worth taking a punt. Is there a similar bathymetric uh, shape? that you think makes good, like a good, uh, beach break barrel? Oh, well, that's like a whole beach break, beach breaks versus sandbars to me. Well, not sandbars, but spits are a little different. Right. Beach breaks. And this is interesting. Back to the trip I was telling you about before. I've always assumed that lower period swell is more likely to be peaky on a beach break. Right. And so this beach break that we found was firing when the period was like 17 seconds. And as it dropped down to 12 and 13, it was actually really walled up. And I was like, what is going on here? That's opposite of everything I've ever learned right. about beach breaks. So I started looking carefully on Google Earth again, and I found a reef about a quarter mile off of the beach break. And it's at a specific depth. And when the period of the swell is long enough, the wave reaches farther into the ocean and it feels that reef and it breaks it up into peaks. Whereas when it was a shorter period swell, it's missing that reef and coming straight into the beach break. Hmm. So there's so many – beach breaks are so interesting because you could have rocks, you can have jetties, you can have anything that disturbs the symmetry of the coastline. Are you, do you tend to look for spits mostly these days? Like a, I'm, I want to find a five-mile-long right-hand 
barreling sandbar. Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? I would or say are the you... last four or five years, that no, oh, last three years, that's been more of a focus. Before, right. it was all about reef passes. Will you find a part of the world that you want to <clears throat> scour a little bit and then just go like fly along Google Earth with it? Yeah, and that's when you're up till two in the morning because it takes to look at every little bit of a coastline of a, a country with a thousand miles takes hours, hours right. and hours. And and you're looking for you know if you're looking for a new spit, you're basically looking for something that's going to bend, swell around the corner, and then be a straight sandbar that doesn't have a lot of sediment built up to to take away the power of the wave. You know, like I've looked at Bangladesh quite a lot because there's a massive delta there and there's river mouths. But there's so much sediment coming out of the rivers <clears throat> that you would basically just have the weakest, like, straight-hand rollers coming in. So I've never even thought of actually going for a trip, even mm. though on Google Earth it looks amazing. The sediment coming out of the rivers would mess up the sandbar? Uh, what it would do is it would create a very gradual change in depth. Right. And what we're looking for, the type of waves that you and I prefer, and the type that people like to see in the media— requires a deep water to very shallow in an abrupt right. space, you know? That's why the East Coast tends to have smaller waves, right? It's because the transcontinental – is it transcontinental? No, that's the wrong one. But it's basically just that there are reefs really far out, like in in Florida and stuff, that block a lot of the swell. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't think it blocks a swell. It, it um, minimizes, minimizes the energy it. of it. Right, right, right. And then, of course, all East Coast – basically suck because storms start in the east or start in the west and move east which means they start on the east coast and move towards the west coast so the chance of getting a good swell on an east coast you need a hurricane or a typhoon of some sort whereas if you live on the west coast you're just getting hammered by swell all the time gotcha yeah so when you're flying google earth are you are you typically first looking for like okay here are swell models on, say, storm surf, and you're seeing how they're moving, and you're seeing that these huge storms are tending to hit certain parts of coastlines that are less inhabited, and then you go from there to Google Earth and start flying the coast to see if there are any kind of contours. Yeah, I would say 50% of the time I'm doing that, looking at areas that are not very inhabited, but they get a lot of swell. But I find that the the better discoveries are usually places that don't get a lot of swell. But when they do, the sandbars are primed because they haven't been eroded away by little like little waves, you know. And so more and more, I'm looking at places that might only get a swell every four or five years right. from yeah, some like anomalous. A lot storm. of like long sand points are really only barreling well on the first few swells before they get kind of tracked out, for lack of a better. And word. they might only get ten days a year. Right, you know, because most of them exist because they don't get hammered by by waves all the time. How does that work? Why is is that because waves flatten out a sandbar? Yeah, I mean, when we look at the North Shore, right, and over the summer you have all the sand move into the reef at pipe, and then it depends on the direction of the of the swell. Some directions of swell pull sand away from the reef and make it good at pipe. Other directions of swell put sand on the reef, and so. That's a big concern, actually, in the area that I bumped into you a couple of years ago. <clears throat> you know, one of the best sandbars in the world, very fickle. It only breaks a handful of times a year. And now there's talk of developing a big resort and a marina in the area. And they want to build a huge seawall so that they can bring boats in for tourists, non-surf-related tourists. And you're basically going to impede and and interfere with the movement of that sand, which has a natural cycle 
when there's a certain swell season, sand moves one direction. When there's currents, moves another way. Well, now you're going to create a block so the sand can no longer come in. What's that going to do to the wave? What's it going to do to the beach? Which is the whole point of the tourist coming to this beautiful beach. Um, yeah, and that's a concern. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Build seven hotels for a beautiful beach and then destroy the beach for yeah. three years? Well, that's what I, I think this way is well known enough to talk about now because they've had the CT contest there. But Bar de la Cruz yep. was is a Mexico point break that's one of the better in the world. And then they uh, the sand got messed up. And it sucked for and like it five sucked years. for a really long time. Yeah. And that and just like you said, it's like shoop, you ha- wait. You had a bunch of rich white surfers coming in on a on an assembly line, giving you money. Like what, fifty bucks, hundred bucks? That doesn't matter. So you're getting this huge influx of money into your little community that didn't have anyone going down there. You know, more than ten years ago. Yep. Very few people. And now you are shifting your whole economic model to rely on tourists and, oh, your wave sucks now. People don't want to go back. Exactly. And then I don't know if this is true, but I heard a rumor that the river flushed and blew away what was blocking the sand and it's finally coming back. Yeah, slowly, slowly. And it seems to be that nature eventually takes care of itself like that and resets the, the natural rhythms. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, a little bit of foresight. And I think in Indonesia, we've seen this a lot. I talk with Mikala Jones about it a bunch and waves that are being destroyed because they're building huge hotels and casinos. And I understand like Ch- Chinese tourists are a big form of income, tourism income in Indonesia, but surfing is too. And like, you could probably just move that. If you need to build a casino, do you need to build it in the middle of a wave that is part of the reason people are coming to your place and, and putting money into your into your infrastructure it's so weird yeah um all right so so you're looking on google earth i want to keep keep going through this and then why why do you look at local buoys more than just like magic seaweed or surfline how do you compare all this stuff well that's so you're asking about the tools that i use yeah of course i'm using magic seaweeds um forecasting team i've got them on on email every other day um just like you know, I might be scoping an area. What's the chances that we're going to get a swell there? Can you give me the historical data, which they can pull up 50 years of historical data and tell me this is when we had swells. Or maybe I find a picture of a wave and I want to know, and the guy, you know, a non-surfer takes a picture. There's a wave in particular that I'm looking at right now. And a non-surfer took a picture and he told me the date that he took it. And so I go to Magic Seaweeds guys and I say, okay, can you tell me... Uh, what was the what were the swell situation or the conditions on this date 15 years ago? And so that's obviously a, a valuable tool. The problem is, huh? Because waves tend to come in. Do you, do you believe that? Like that waves will come in on the same day, even? No, like, not it, the same day. But if they can give me historical data, yeah. I know the direction and right. the size of the swell, so I know what to chase. Right. Yeah. But then, aside from you know, not everybody has the the two biggest surf forecasting websites chief forecasters emailing them every other day you know like a lot of us are just depending on generic forecasts that these websites have the problem is they only have forecasts for waves that we already know about so that's not very valuable to me but then buoy weather which surfline owns or i don't know if they own it but they they run it i think they have the same algorithm as as surfline so if you were to do a forecast for pipeline on surfline 
and on buoy weather, you would get the exact same reading. But you can't do a forecast for somewhere in India on Surfline because there's no surf spot there. Buoy weather, you can. So you go into buoy weather and you choose whatever point you want in the ocean anywhere in the world and you can get a readout of a virtual forecast. Hmm. Is that because they have buoys out there or is it a, is there other are there other ways to measure swell besides buoys in the water? No, I think what they're doing is they're using the models that the Navy's developing um, of swells and storms and then they're um, what would the word be? They're projecting what they think that swell is going to do when it arrives there. So it's a virtual buoy and I would say Ninety percent of what I'm looking at is virtual buoy readings. I don't do you, know. Why, I don't know why we call them buoys. Do you know? But you're right. But do you know how the Navy gets their information? No. Huh. I'd be an interesting. I mean, I would assume from from satellite imagery and right. Yeah. And they so they, I wonder if they can just see ocean waves from satellites and project out how big that is. Well, definitely. Like the guys at Magic Sea would have told me that once a storm develops, they can look into the storm with satellite and see how large the swell becomes. And mm-hmm. then, so before that, it's all projection. Right. And it's like, we think it's going to get this big, but once they can see how big it gets, then they have a much tighter forecast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So you're looking at all those different <clears throat> tools and you're looking at historical data and then do you have any kind of like alerts or something where like you're like okay the numbers are going to come together for this spot like i'm guessing that you have four or five spots that you're looking at at all times waiting for the magic combination yeah i probably have 30 or 40 spots that i'm looking (laughs) at at all times and again i it's the same as when we're talking about like writing stories and taking notes i probably should be better about taking notes i have a pretty decent memory too and i just you know, you're like a walking encyclopedia after you study it for 20 years. I, I can see a swell chart and see a storm, and I'm like, oh, this spot, this spot, this spot, and this spot. And then what I want to see are the numbers, especially if the wave has been surfed or we've got a picture. I want to see numbers that match the direction and the size that I'm mm-hmm. looking for. Got it. Yep. Um, oh, dude, you're a scientist. <laughs> I love uh, it. It's fun. When I, was, when I was living out in Micronesia and teaching for quite a few years, Yeah. I was teaching English, but I also got to teach science. And I had a bunch of local kids that I would take surfing. And I did an entire quarter just on the science of surfing. Really? And they loved it. Like we would talk about period, like the period of waves and how fast they move at different periods and how deep they are and how, why wind does what it does and why trade winds do this and why like, you know, you get offshores in the morning in some places and then windy during the day and yeah, I mean, how fun is that? You get to teach science, but you're just talking about surfing all day. <laughs> yeah, it's very selfish science yeah. class. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I was I, loving it. I think that there's a wave right here. Off. <laughs> We're going to study this part of Africa today, kids. Yeah. You <laughs> all are going to be on Google Earth for two hours <laughs> yeah, for extra just, credit. I see, I see what you're doing here, Matt. Mm-hmm. You're just getting a bunch of little minions. We can cover more <laughs> ground this way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you have your little, like, like <laughs> Russian troll farm. They're all just, like, They're just searching, searching for waves. out waves for you. You're, like, twisting. <laughs> Your evil mustache on the top yep. floor, cackling. Find it, find it, children. <laughs> That's pretty much it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and oh man, all right. There's so much I want to ask you about. Well, I want to, I want to um, ask you about when you first started traveling before you were getting, um, like before you were able to get other people to pay you to go on trips. Yep. Um, <clears throat> Who first introduced you to the credit card game? Ooh, that's a good question. 
I don't know. It's kind of just been there for like 20 years. Okay. I've been doing it for so long, I can't remember. And what's what's your game? What, whatever you're willing to talk about or yeah, not of course. talk about, I mean, it's totally, totally fine. But I think that there are a lot of people who don't have the financial means to travel who really would love to. Yeah, and I love and, I love sharing this information with people. I, it's awesome. not a secret at all. Um, but like I told you earlier today, we were talking about it. I am concerned about giving this program to people who who aren't financially responsible. Right. Because credit cards are a very dangerous and evil tool. I think that they're pretty much toxic unless you can use it in the opposite way. And so when I use my credit cards, I pay off my credit card every week. Like literally, I've never paid an interest, a dime on interest. I don't spend anything on my credit cards that I don't have in the bank. It's basically a debit card, but you can get points from credit cards. And I talk to like businessmen who, you know, they've got millions of points because they spend millions of dollars in their businesses. And they're like, yeah, I get one point per dollar. And I was like, no, you're missing, you're missing the whole point, man. These credit cards will give you bonuses. And in the old days, you would get a bonus just for signing up like 50,000 miles. You make one purchase. I buy like a stick of gum and I get 50,000 miles. That's a free trip. Nowadays, you have to spend a certain amount of money to get the bonus. So for instance, um, I use a lot of chase cards because they, their miles are transferable to an airline that I like to use for the places that I go. And so like, for instance, their Inc. Inc. business preferred card gives you 70 or 80,000 points. Are you willing to talk about that airline? Yeah, it's, it's United. United. It's just, I mean, I don't talk too much about it just because, uh, you know, United only goes certain places. Right. Um, but we can leave it at that. Yeah. And so you look at the card and they're like, okay, we're going to give you 70 or 80,000 miles if you spend $4,000 in three months. Most people living in the U.S., living in Europe, living in Australia, they're spending way more than that on a bunch of shit that they don't need, you know? And so if you use your credit card to buy everything and then immediately pay it off, you're taking something that has enslaved millions of people in the U.S., like what the average American has three or $4,000 of credit card debt. And instead of becoming a slave, you're using that system and you're saying, okay, I'm going to pay all my bills and expenses on this credit card, pay it off the next day with the money I have in the bank. I'm going to get 70,000 miles. And with 70,000 miles, I can do $4,000 for the travel. So for doing absolutely nothing, I just got two trips. And then once you've hit the bonus, most people just keep the credit card and pay the fee every year over and over again. No, you put that card aside and you get the next card. And then you start spending on that until you hit the bonus. So you only use the cards for the bonuses. Mm. Like one dollar per one point per dollar does not get you a lot of miles. Right. Seventy thousand points for a bonus gets you two trips. So you do four cards, you rotate them every two years, which is how long you have to wait to get the points again. You get And like, they're all chase cards? They're all Chase cards. So which ones? So I use Chase, Sapphire, Preferred, or Reserve, depending on what you want. And then the Ink Business Preferred, and then the Chase United Mileage Plus, and the Chase United Business Card. And they'll let you have the bonus every two years, except for the Sapphires. I think they've just moved it to four years. Right. <clears throat> and... And then you don't. But, then you're, but you're transferring the miles from one credit card to the other credit card, and not just the miles. You're also transferring your credit line because you don't want a ding in your credit in case you want to buy a house or you need a loan, which I don't suggest getting a loan if you can help it. 
unless it's an investment. Right. So you're, so you're getting one credit card. You get the bonus. You then transfer that credit card to a different to the this to another one that you've opened. Exactly. And I then call you, and then you close that credit card. So I call or, I call Chase up and I tell him I don't want to cancel the card. I want to move the credit line to a new card so that my aggregate credit doesn't go down. So then I don't lose any points off my credit score. Okay. And so then once they've moved the the credit line over, then I cancel the card before I pay the annual fee for the second year. Okay. Yep. And then two years later, you can do it again. In fact, like a year and a half ago, I realized that I'd kept a card too long and it had been two years and I was eligible for the bonus again. So I canceled the card and then I applied for it the next day Mm. and I got it and I got the bonus literally because I just canceled the card and applied for it again. Okay. So So what are your four cards that you have then? Chase, you know, well, I only have Wait, one at a time. Oh, just one. Oh, because they yeah. close the next one. Exactly. Close the next Boom, boom, boom. And that gets you access to lounges too. Uh, so one of the cards I use, which is a Chase Sapphire Reserve, and it actually has a pretty high annual fee, but it is offset by a travel bonus. So you can get like $300 cash back on any travel expenses. And I travel a lot, so that's pretty easy to do. And that gets you unlimited lounges through the priority pass yeah. system. And I... You know, I probably do $10,000 of lounge, you know, $10,000 equivalent of lounges per year. I like live in lounges, eat in lounges, shower in them. Yeah. And Chase is paying for it. And that's great because Chase is like like a corrupt corporate fuck, yeah. entity. <laughs> fuck Chase. So fuck those guys and we, let them pay for me to do shit. Yeah. We, we give them a motherfucker award. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, the credit card game. Does uh, did you know? Also, you should never buy. Uh, you, you never need to buy extra rental car insurance because either AAA or one of the credit cards, like pretty much any credit card, will automatically cover uh, car insurance. Definitely uh, for, for rental cars. The Chase. I know the Chase Sapphires yeah. do the United Minds Plus. In fact, I was in Iceland a year ago, and I was going to buy. I wasn't going to buy the comprehensive, but I was going to buy the liability. And this really sweet woman in Iceland, she's like, oh, don't buy that. You know, like you get it for free with your credit card. And I'm used to people trying to upsell me. And she's telling me, no, don't buy our insurance. You you don't need it. Yeah, they're always trying to – because you get the rental car from the airport and they're always trying to upsell you on the insurance. Exactly. And but she was doing the opposite. It, it yep. was great. That's smart. That's yep. smart. Um, what other ninja moves, travel ninja moves that you're willing to, to give up to a bunch of – People who are like, I want to fucking travel, but I don't really know how, and I don't necessarily have the funds to do it. Like, what advice would yeah. you give to them? Well, so there's a few websites out there where you can. One second, I lost my headphones. Where you can find tickets for very cheap, um, but you've got to be pretty flexible. Right. So, for instance, there's websites that will link together itineraries where you might not be going to the final destination. But you have a layover in the destination you want to go to. What are those so, websites? Uh, what is that one called, Kilty? Skiplag. Skiplag. Skiplag.com. Yeah. And basically, let's say I want to go to Los Angeles and I'm in Colorado, and it's $400 to get to Los Angeles, but it's $300 for some unknown reason to go to Los Angeles and then to Portland. Hmm. I just book myself to Portland, only take a carry-on, and get off in Los Angeles. Nobody can stop you from doing that. Right. You know, like you get off the plane, 
for your layover, you don't get on your next flight. And I know somebody did get busted recently, but he did it all wrong. Like he was booking, like putting in check baggage and trying to, I don't know, if you're subtle about it, you can do this. Hmm. And then to me, even better than trying to game the system like that is just stop being so hung up on where you want to go and when you want to go. There's a million epic places in the world. And one of them is having a sale on tickets right now. And it might not be where you thought you wanted to go this year, but right. I bet if you go, you're going to have a good time and meet epic people. Yeah. So if you just keep your eyes open for good deals and say, oh, I wanted to go to Nicaragua for this swell, but I can get to Costa Rica for half as much. Might as well go to Costa Rica. Yeah. And you know? what websites do you look at for those cheap tickets? Oh, there's one called... I don't really look at them much because I use miles all the time. Right. But what, <laughs> but, what would you recommend? Yeah. What, do you know uh, any of those ones? What is, is it? Something Harry's Cheap Tickets or something like that? Scott's Cheap Flights. What is it? Scott's Cheap Flights. Scott's Cheap Flights. Yeah. And then I don't mind getting like – I have one email address that I use just for like junk mail. And so I'll sign up for alerts from like numerous different companies that are having sales on tickets and I'm not even going and searching for them. I'm just letting them come to my inbox. Hmm. Like, Oh, there's a cheap ticket to Prague. I've always wanted to go to Prague. Hmm. You know, why don't you go to Prague? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's really wild how cheap some tickets can get at certain times of the year. Oh, I mean, it's, you don't know how they're making money. <laughs> right. You know, it's crazy. Because I guess they just need to keep flights going. Yep. At, at a certain... And some of them are subsidized by governments. I mean, I I did a flight once from India to Los Angeles through Moscow on Russian Aeroflot, and it was a 747 with eight people on it. And I was like, how can this be possible? But they're subsidized by the Russian government, and they're getting fuel for very cheap. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, you're flying across the world. Yeah, 25 with, hours. With eight people on board. It was unbelievable. Oh, the travel industry is so weird. It yeah. is, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, everything's in flux right now with yeah. the whole the economic crash, and yeah, we'll see. We may not get to travel the way we did three months ago. You know, it might not come back. So again, do it while you can. That's what I've been doing for fifteen years, eighteen years. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a? Um, a few items in your go bag that have been really helpful for you? Yeah. I mean, obviously I have a surf go bag that's always packed and ready to go. Like sometimes I'll make a decision to go on a swell in, in less than an hour. So I've got a bag with boards and wetsuits and everything. But then as far as just like traveling in general, um, melatonin, cause I don't want to take sleeping pills, but melatonin is relatively healthy and it helps with a jet lag. Um, the laptop, obviously, because I need to be able to work. I've started using a mask sometimes when I'm traveling, which seems to help. Um, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of the masks. I got another one. Um, I used to use the um, the squishy earplugs. Yep. What What are those ones called? I don't know. There's like little bits of foam. The in little ear. bits of foam that go in your ear. Yep. Dude, they can give you ear infections. Interesting. I've I've struggled. I've been on surf trips with the, the <clears throat> little foam ones that go in your ear and. The reason for it is because they get bacteria on them and they stuff in your ear. And after a long day of surfing, if your ears are still wet, do they can tweak you out? So I've started using the Max to sleep. They're like the sticky ones that swimmers use. You can also use them to sleep and they deafen all the sound, but uh, don't go in your ear. Yeah. I mean, you got to think that foam is just collecting bacteria. For sure. Yeah. And then what else am I taking... 
I mean, hand sanitizer, even before the whole COVID thing, we've been pretty good about hand sanitizer, um, wipes, you know, um, yeah, you want to keep your hands, mask. you want to keep your hands clean when yeah, you're Yeah, well, if you're going to fly 40 hours to surf a wave and then you arrive and you're sick and you can't surf the wave, you've kind of blown it. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I w- I've been wearing a mask for five years, like long before it became, you know, a CDC guideline to do it. I remember doing a trip to Namibia and I wore the same mask for 40 hours straight because there's no way I'm going to go on a dream trip to, you know, surf Skeleton Bay and get there and have a cold yeah. or a flu. And then, do you, you take vitamin C or any kind of vitamins? Vitamin C, a lot of water. You yeah. got to stay hydrated on flights. So I always carry my own water bottle. Lately, that's changed. They won't fill your water bottles anymore on flights yeah. because of contamination and the COVID thing. I never. I try to avoid eating airline food because I first of all don't think it's good for you. Second of all, everything comes single packaged in plastic. <laughs> so like, if you do a flight, like a five hour flight, and you get let's say. Four cups of water, four cups of soda, your meal. You probably just made 30 pieces of plastic trash. Like, that's bullshit. So pack your own food. You're going to eat healthier. You're going to get there. You're going to sleep better because you're eating well. You're super hydrated because you've got, you know, a two-liter water bottle with you. In the last year, I've started fasting whenever I go on trips. I drove straight from Santa Cruz to Colorado and didn't eat once. I woke up at 3 a.m., just started drinking coffee and drank coffee throughout the whole day and arrived at like 9 p.m., 8 p.m. maybe, 9 p.m. Yep. And I could do it. And I'm confident that I could not have if I had multiple meals. Yeah. I mean, you're more clear-headed when you fast, I think, to an extent. I mean, I'm sure like by day seven, it's pretty miserable. But I lose weight when I fast. I've tried it for a while. I would do like one day a week fasting and I think my activity level is just too much, and I would lose. I, I did it for four weeks, and I lost like ten pounds. Yeah, that's not going to work for me. But I mean, fasting is a whole other topic. I find very fascinating. Yeah. Well, dude, you have such crazy levels of energy. It's been really weird to watch you over the last couple of days. I'm pretty frothy. Yeah, you're super frothy. Yeah. Have you always just been bouncing off the walls? Had like fifteen percent more energy than most people? Yeah, definitely. I'm. I, I exhaust people. I think. Huh. Yeah. When they're trying to keep up or just like, I'm just frothing all the time. I want to do shit all the time. You know, you only get so many years. You might as well do as much as you can. And Right. But even just physically, like you were a triathlete. Yes. I was racing triathlon in college. I actually, probably the most, the least energized I've ever been was when I was in college racing triathlon. I was overtraining. <laughs> and like, I don't really suffer from depression. I don't really get exhausted. And, and I was at that time. I was studying... 25 hours, you know, worth of classes per week and training 20 hours a week. And I would go into these really low places and I was like, this is strange because I've never been depressed. Overtraining is like, that's a whole nother interesting topic because in Boulder where my parents are, it's like a triathlon Mecca. And I've met people who've gone into like adrenal failure and thyroid failure because of overtraining. Yeah. But my tendency is to overtrain because I, I'm just having fun. Yeah, you know? lots like, of energy. I just want to go more. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you, so did you, like, I always find, I don't know, maybe people do love triathlon, but you also like doing really fun shit. Yeah, like, it's totally like, changed for me. Right, where you're like, I want to go on the adventure and explore, not like I want to drain my batteries. Yeah, when I was in college, I was, I wanted to win. You know, I was competitive and, and that was important to me and it's not important anymore. Like, I could probably be 10% fitter if I trained 
scientifically. And I, you know, you do speed interval work on this day and you do distance work on that day. And then what's the point? You're paying $500 to do a race. You win a, a little medal. And then <laughs> yeah. the next race, somebody beats you and you're not the fastest anymore. So now training, like quote unquote training for me is just whatever's fun. And for me, what's fun is paddling, surfing, mountain biking, rock climbing, running through the woods, doing yoga. And so I don't think of it as training. And then you don't burn out because I burned out and I quit triathlon my senior year in college because I was just super unhappy. Mm. And I'm never unhappy now. I'm just like, oh, yeah, stoked. Let's go do something again. (laughs) It's insane how hard you chase waves and the fact that you do so many other sports. There are a lot of people who only surf and don't do it like nearly as hard as you do it. Yeah, I mean, for 15 years, all I did was surf. And in the last five years, I've, and I lived on an island like by myself basically for 15 years, like far away from everyone just because the waves were really good. And then the last five years, I've realized there's a lot of cool shit to do in the world. And the thing is, the waves aren't epic every day. And when the waves are average, I can still get in the water and surf for an hour. But I don't, when I was 15, I wanted to surf for eight hours, even if it was on shore. Now I'll surf for an hour and then I'll go mountain bike. And that's like just as fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and it actually keeps you the fitter. Mountain. Yeah, and it keeps you fitter because you're cross-training. and But you don't think of it as training. Yeah, you're dude, like I haven't had any pads on my ass over the last two dude, days. Dude, I wondered how you were going to do today. Dude, my ass is so sore. Yeah. yeah. My buddy Jesse, who I grew up with in, in Hawaii and traveled with him a bunch surfing, I got him into mountain biking three years ago, and he's a Christian pastor. And he's very careful with what he says. And day two of his first mountain biking, <laughs> I heard shit coming out of his mouth that I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. He was in so much pain. Oh, yeah. It's such a fun sport, man. Mountain biking just takes you into the most majestic places. And you're going fast enough that you're getting an adrenaline rush the whole time. Oh, man. That ride I did this afternoon, I was... I mean, stoked I did the ride, but I'm stoked I didn't die, you know? like It's intense. That's the thing that fucking terrifies me about mountain biking is that you can go really fast without having to be very good. Yeah, it's it's easy to, to go faster than you should. And it's, I mean, you get injured. That's just how it is. Like I've, in the last two years, I've had a couple of concussions and a broken wrist and a broken clavicle. And I've started getting a bunch of like our mutual friends, you know, big wave buddies like Jamie Sterling and Jamie Mitchell and Trevor Carlson. They've all started mountain biking with me in Hawaii, but they're all, there's only a certain level they want to go to because they can't afford to get injured. Yeah. And it's just inevitable. You yeah. Know? Do you feel that you push it hard enough that you are just like, okay, I'll deal with an injury here, here or there? No, I don't want to be injured. And a lot of my friends have been injured in the last couple of years in the last year, and I've done a lot of thinking about probably our group of friends spends about 10% of our time injured. And that's, I mean, I'm never happy when I'm injured because I'm pretty much addicted to all these fun things we're doing and you can't do them. But at the same time, like where you find that thrill is right on the edge between disaster and, and not disaster, you know, and I think that's where the injuries come. And, and then but that you were saying like, oh, how interesting that I surf and do other sports. Well, I broke a rib. I don't know if it was a broken rib or a torn intercostal muscle in April in Hawaii. And the waves were firing all of April. And I surfed on that rib all of April and it was horrible. But once the swells were no longer good, I knew I had to stay out of the water to get that rib healed because ribs take months. 
And, you know, five years ago, that would have meant me sitting on my ass for two months. And instead, I just rock climbed and mountain biked every day. And I, that's sweet, too. Yeah, it's super you know? sweet. Super fun. Yeah, I, I'm really into spending my summer doing a lot of new sports. Yeah, I'm kind of excited for this little journey you're on because, I mean, I only ever see you in the surf and on surf trips. And you're like on a four or five month non-surfing trip. I am indeed. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's my eat, pray, love journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's our, we'll, uh, we'll have words about that later. I don't love the eat, pray, love. You're all, you're all over it. Dude, I'm going to become the most murderous fly fisherman in all of Colorado. I don't by know. The end of this summer, dude. <sighs> Women adore me. Fish fear me. Fish. It's so frustrating. It's such a frustrating sport. I still haven't caught a fish yet. I the hope fish, I did, I the hope, fish fear you so much that they're like staying away they're from staying your lure. Staying away from me. <laughs> you know what's fucking frustrating about fly fishing, dude, is you, you cast back and it always hits a bush. <laughs> and he catches the bush. Well, you're catching something. Ah, I'm catching bushes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vegan fly fisherman. Yeah, so far. Yeah, but dude, it's uh, untangling line. Dude, I, I, I almost started crying the other day. It was so tangled, and it's and it's blowing in the wind, and it's so small, and you can't see the line. Yeah, it's. But I, I do like. I like looking at water dynamics in a totally new way. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen that. I mean, I don't fish. But rivers are strange. Yeah, rivers, rivers are, are trippy. Rivers are totally different water. We were talking with our buddy Nate today about kayaking. And, you know, like, what the things they're doing are crazy. And they're looking for eddies and for rocks. And then sailing is a whole other thing. Like, I've been on little Hobie cats. And you're, like, looking at the water. But, like, looking at how the wind is coming across the water. And you know it's going to impact your sail. I mean, these are things that are so foreign to me. I've just had a little taste of them. But we're so used to understanding the ocean. I think that's probably the biggest challenge with surfing is not paddling, not balancing. It's having a relationship with the ocean. And there's all these people who are doing other activities in water, and they have that relationship in a totally different way. It's yeah. pretty cool. From fly fishing to kayaking. Yeah. Yeah, uh, your buddy Nate was talking about how he only goes off 30-foot waterfalls. Yeah. In only. a kayak. Yeah, he's like, no, nah, I'll only, like, you know, I got a kid now, so I'll only hit, like, 30-footers. And we're like, wait, what? He's like, no, but you you hit it at an angle with this big buoy that's attached to you. Yep. And you can send it off of waterfalls. Dude, can you imagine going off a 30-foot waterfall in a kayak? No, I mean, if I went over a one-foot waterfall, I'd probably throw my back out, you know, and he's doing 30-foot waterfalls. How is that even possible? And then later he was telling me he does the same thing on snowmobiles. He's like, yeah, we're just, we don't do much bigger than 40 foot cornices as long as there's good powder landing. He's like, you're a lunatic. Yeah, mountain people are lunatics. Yeah, they are. They're crazy people. But do they think ocean people are lunatics? Oh, for sure. Anybody who, who isn't in the ocean all the time, they see what we're doing and they think it's just death, you know? Gosh, you know what's weird? All right, so I, I was surfing a river wave. Uh, I saw footage of that. Yeah. That's it's, why it's, I texted you. Yeah, it's fun. It's, uh, it's like, you know, the, these cities or, you know, these little towns through Colorado will make little river waves, um, which it's basically like a man-made small waterfall that then creates a backwash yep. that you can kind of jump into and surf for a little bit. And, I mean, maybe some of them get good. The ones that I surfed were, like, fun. You know, like kind of standing there and there's white water. But... And and you can, you know, move back and forth a little bit. It's not like a real lip that you can hit or anything. No. But 
what was interesting was I fell and even though it was such a small wave, the water sucked me so quickly, it felt like I was kind of getting worked on a bigger wave Crazy. just because of the speed that it was moving me underwater. And it, it made me think about this. The, the, how much a beating hurts is less about the size of the wave and the speed with which you move underwater. Oh, I agree. And even above the water, because I've noticed on a waist high day and I'm on a longboard and I'm going over a wave and the lip hits me in the chest. This is like, you know, a one foot wave and it hits me way harder than when I duck dive on like a double overhead wave. Yeah. It's like, I think it's proximity to the energy, like where it's, where it's going. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, when you started swell forecasting, did you teach yourself all of that? Yeah, I mean, I was just obsessed with it and it's all I thought about, you know, and you talk to people and they give you little tips and then you read articles. I mean, I've read the same article by, I don't know if it's by Pat Caldwell, maybe, who's a legendary Hawaiian, Hawaii surf forecaster about the, the correlation between the period of a wave and how quickly it moves and how far below the ocean. He goes, I probably read that article a hundred times, you know, it's, I find it so fascinating and then we're just nerding out, basically. But we're nerding out about cool things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're like freaking Alex Honnold. You're like <laughs> super geek who just Dude, uses it to... Alex is crazy. Yeah. No, but it's, it is, it's a different orientation to surfing. Um, Greg Long's the same way. He's a tactician. But it's ironic because it's in a sport full of people that aren't known to be the the sharpest tools in the shed. Yeah, and it's funny actually that you talk about how not sharp our tools are cuz people have asked me like, "Oh, why aren't why aren't you writing for like climbing magazines and mountain biking magazines? You really enjoy that, you know?" And the thing is, and I hate to say it, but there's there's not a lot of really educated deep thinking surfers or maybe I don't bump into them very much. It's not that hard to be a writer in the surf industry. Yeah. Because how many people are writing that are surfers, you know? And then you got like mountain bikers all have PhDs and master's degrees. Yeah. Like climbers what? too. Yeah. Climbers are smarter Every other than surfers. Every, we're the least educated sport in all sports. Like I remember a few years ago, there was not a single person with a college degree on tour. Yeah. Like what's going on? Like other sports require you to get a college degree to go pro. Yeah. You know? It's a real thing. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's so funny. You're like, I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be the best damn surf writer out there. I can put like four words together. There I are got some, a job. There actually are some amazing surf writers. There are. Um, there are a few that are very smart. No, I and absolutely. Um, but you know, we can name most of them. That and we know most of them. Yeah, yeah. Chris Carter, guy who started X Files. Yep, was the editor of Surfing Magazine. You were telling me that today. That's wild. Yeah. Steve Hawk is a very smart guy. Steve Hawk, Mount Warshaw is very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Hawk is wicked smart. Yeah. Um, super cool dude, too. He lives up in Half Moon Bay. Yep. Still shreds. Um, yeah. So, huh, we've been going for a little while. What's next for you, man? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if any of us know what's next for us because we don't know what's going to happen with the whole COVID thing at the moment. For You know... For now, I'm just waiting to see when the world opens back up. I haven't surfed in seven weeks. 
Well, I stand up paddled once at Sunset Beach a couple of weeks ago and hurt my rib. Mm. So I didn't paddle back out after that. But That's a sign. You shouldn't stand up paddleboard. I agree with that. But <laughs> I couldn't lay down on a board, so I had to do something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm pretty itchy to go chase a swell. Dude, stand up paddleboarding is a great exercise. You know, I was super anti stand up paddleboarding until the, I realized the island I was living on in Micronesia had 50 miles of mangrove channels. Wow. And so I ended up getting some stand ups, and it's like Jurassic Park Dude, on water. Mangroves are Unreal. an alien life force. Yeah, they're the heart of the island, really. They're radical. They're the heart of the island. Yeah, that's what the people tell us. They're like, and are they all salt water? So they're brackish. What does that mean? It means salt and fresh mixed. Okay. Yep. So there always there is always some kind of outlet. Uh, some of them that are very shallow, you don't you can only go in like half a mile. They'd be almost pure salt. Yeah. But a lot of them have a river feeding into them, and so it's cool because I would go up a mangrove and you're seeing a certain fish species and certain plant species, and then you would eventually make it into the river, and everything changes. All the fish are different. All the plants are different. And you're like. 10 miles into an island in the middle of nowhere and you feel like you're in Jurassic Park. Dude. Super radical. Yeah. There's a wave that I've had a chance to surf a few times and you drive a boat through a mangrove uh, mangrove forest. Yep. And uh, so the fable goes, there's a community. I've actually, there are community, there's a community in there that I've seen, but they're made up of transvestite crocodile breeders. What? <laughs> this sounds like a place to go. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I cannot confirm that fact, but I'm going to go on repeating it because it's a damn good story. Yeah, those are the best, best stories to tell. Yeah, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Exactly. Now, you know, one stand-up paddle trip I did that was amazing was in Alaska. It was with my family, which is pretty cool. I get to do one or two trips with my whole family every year. And we went into Prince William Sound and paddled 60 miles. They were on kayaks and I was on a stand-up. Yeah, sorry, go for it. And up to 300-foot high glaciers that were calving. I was getting far too close. Like, it was probably dangerous looking back. But they're calving all night long while we're camping on the beach. You can just hear it. I was probably 50 to 100 feet from a 300-foot glacier that calved. Whoa. Just the most primal energy I've ever experienced. Far more than <laughs> far more than a huge day at Mavs or at Nazare. This is like 20,000-year-old ice that's falling down, and then you can hear it popping and crackling in the water, which is the oxygen that's trapped in the ice that's been there for 25,000 years. Whoa. Unreal, man. How far away is, is this island, and how long were you camping for? No, this is actually a, a series of fjords and um, sounds... And so you just go wherever you want, you know, like you can paddle the one area and there's whales and you can paddle the other and there's glaciers. So we were in Whittier, Alaska, and we took a little ferry boat and they dropped us off on the spit and we just paddled for five days and unbelievable. And did you put all your camping gear on the front of the stand-up paddle boards? Uh, I had some gear on the stand-up paddle boards, but the kayaks had a lot of storage. Mm. So we put gear in there and that was more watertight. Nice. Yep. And were you just bringing warm clothes and, and all your food and water Well, that's as well? the irony. I mean, brought all of our food. You don't need water because it's so pristine that you can just drink straight out of waterfalls. And I'm, like, very careful normally with water filters and UV light, like, SteriPens. And our guide was telling us, you don't need anything. Like, nobody lives out here. No animals are, can climb these mountains. They're so steep. So we didn't have to take water. Took uh. all of our food. And then we took a lot of warm clothes because... It's notoriously rainy there, and we scored six days of perfect sunny weather. We were putting on sunscreen, and the guy told us, 
in 30 years of paddling, so I've never seen somebody put on sunscreen. You know, so, wow. Yeah, it was an amazing trip. And it was was the primary objective just to experience glaciers. Yeah, to experience glaciers in Alaska in general. It's so big, it makes you feel really insignificant, and it makes you appreciate nature. Dude. And yeah, it was amazing. But ironically, I had broken my clavicle four weeks before that trip, mountain biking, of course, and I couldn't cancel the trip, so I had to paddle with a broken clavicle. And so that bone is still broken. It's been like five years, and I got back from the trip, and the doctor's like, he's like, I know what you did, and it's moved two centimeters, and I'm not going to do surgery on you. Like, you're stupid. (laughs) So I was like, what am I going to do? It's a dream trip, you know? So Uh, right here, it hangs down. Ooh, nice. It's pretty weird. Does it mess with you at all? As long as I stretch and do yoga, I I can handle it. But now and then, if I carry a backpack wrong, I can feel the bone moving, like Mm. the two ends of the bone Mm. where it's broken, like grinding on each other. Do you do yoga every day? Yeah, definitely. If I I don't do at least 30 minutes of yoga, I can't function. Really? Too many injuries. Too many injuries, and then, like, you can't go as hard. You couldn't do your... Oh, yeah, just my lower back tightens up, you know. and, Mm. And I used to do a lot more yoga. I used to do... 90 minutes a day and then like another hour of meditation and pranayama now it's more like 30 to an hour but every morning right when you wake up not necessarily depends on the work schedule and but usually before any activities Hmm. yeah yeah it's good i was on the yoga program for a while and then i quit and i feel a lot tighter yeah, but it's interesting because when you're off it for like a few weeks, you forget how tight you are. Dude, do you know I've been taking on surf trips? It's big, but I like it. I do it. It's the um, the hyper gun, the hyper. I think it's called the hyper ice. It's like the uh, uh, the competitor of the Theragun. Oh, yep. Dude, dude, my calves after a long day of surfing, I just throw it on there. It's a spiritual experience. You need that right now after two days of mountain biking, probably. Dude, I'm so sore. I know. We left our Theragun at home. We just got one for Christmas, and they're and, amazing. And then I have a little spiky ball that yep. I put behind my seat, and that's really good for trips as well. And mm-hmm. you can you can do it on your back, and then when you arrive, you can do it on your ass, on your calves, anywhere, quads. Lacrosse balls are great, too. My sister's husband coaches lacrosse, and yeah, we're using those on our shoulders all the time. You can get them. They're just hard enough. You can get them into all the little... Tiny places that you need massage. Yeah. Yep. I'm a big fan of that. Big fan of keeping the body healthy. And you don't drink. Oh, uh, no. I've maybe had 10 drinks in my life. Good Just, on you. It's, it's not a, I mean, it's not a thing where I think like, oh, good on me, you know, but I've seen a few people will destroy their lives on alcohol. Yeah. Like good friends of mine. And it's just not something that ever seemed like I needed to do it. I'm having so much fun all the time anyways, like chasing little adventures and getting exercise and yeah the word the last thing i want to do is like drink which adds nothing to my life and then be hung over and miss a session the next morning or miss like a beautiful adventure Dude, or a if you're hung over you would, be so if bummed. you're hung over and missed an adventure you would freak out i'd freak out yeah yeah <laughs> don't It'd be drink. so bad <laughs> don't drink please it'd be the end yeah yep yeah uh drinking steals joy from tomorrow it does, and if, if you need it to enjoy something, then you're probably not enjoying it properly anyways. And that's said with no judgment. I have no judgment on people who drink, and no, nearly everyone I know does. But I, I don't see how it adds it, you know? Like, Or what if you have this amazing experience and you were drinking while you're doing it, and then you drank to blackout and you can't remember the experience? Like, that seemed like a waste. Yeah. You know? How many experiences do you get 
every in life. You ever think about your life as a story? You know, so this is in, this is a whole nother topic. Um, I've had a few moments where I'm like in public, like on a public transportation, like a bus or something, and I'm looking around at everyone around me, and I realize that they aren't just players in my story, that they all have stories too. But I think 90%, like most of the time, our lives seems like we're the, the, the protagonist in the story and everyone else is just, you know, bit parts. And then I start thinking like, well, what is it like to be enlightened? Where you realize everyone else's story and, and all the, the network of people around them that they love and that love them. And, and I, that must be like quite difficult to be that aware all the time. But yeah, it's not like I think of like, oh, my life's an epic story. It's just, I think... All of our lives are stories, you know? Yeah. I guess I'm, you know, I'm going through a time in my life where I want COVID and I want like, I want these few months to feel like I did something Mm. with them. And I think I'm making these decisions to like be out in my car alone for a few months, you know, just meeting up with random people, but like largely in a different world in some ways because I want to look back on this time and be like, yeah, that was my story through this time. Yeah, well, you don't I just to... saw a shooting star. We've seen a fox and a shooting star during this podcast. How good is that? Let's make out. Um, what? <laughs> you don't want to... You don't want to... I remember like 10 years ago, I had to be apart from someone that I didn't want to be apart from. And I spoke with a somebody that I really respected and I was complaining about it. Like, God damn it. Like we're apart for three months. And he's like, and I was like, I wish this time was just over. And he's like, you know what? You just missed out on three months because you're so focused on getting through this quote unquote challenging time that you're missing all the experiences of being apart and of being independent. And I think it's so easy to think like, Oh, we're in the middle of a crisis. You know, we can't travel everywhere we want to travel. Uh, we have to wear masks. Like, this is bullshit. I hope it just ends really quickly. Instead of what you're doing, you're like, all right, this is a different time for me. I can't chase waves. So I'm going to go see places I've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. And I think that whenever I think too far in the f- – it, it's it's strange, right? Because I'm talking about this present moment retrospectively. Right, like, oh, I want to look back on this time mm. and, and think I th- I did something awesome, but in some ways, it's that by thinking retrospectively about my life, it's making me take decisions that are good for my life, right? That are that are making me enjoy the present moment more fully. Like today, I felt very present throughout much of the day. I was like, we're mountain biking and now I'm on a fly fish. I'm like, wow, look at all this stuff right here. And I wasn't thinking about the future nearly as much because I was right here. Right. And like, I've, I've had, I've had whole trips when I was a kid where I was so stressed out about the future. I couldn't even enjoy the trip. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it is as close to literally missing the moment as possible is being too wrapped up in the future down the line. But sometimes you need to think about the future in the context of your story to make the best decision so that you can be present in the moment and really enjoy that moment. Well, and you need to think about the future because 
you have to live in the future. Yeah. You know, like Kilty and I, were, she teaches yoga and we were chatting about this a while ago about she was listening to a class about yoga philosophy and living in the moment. And if you live completely in the moment, you're not paying your car insurance. You're not working. You're not buying food. You're, your life's not going to work out. So there's this challenge of like, how do you live in the moment without being irresponsible about the future. But I really like what you said. Instead of worrying about the future, you think of the moment retrospectively. It's like a loophole. It seems like a little bit of a loophole. Yeah, it's a little judo judo move. You yeah. want to be like the hero of your own story. Yeah. Right? And I do think that if I do think that by not taking life so seriously, um, um, like people say not to take life so seriously, but I feel like that is almost a meaningless statement because life is seriously, but life, life is serious. Yep. But there's something about loosening your grip on life that allows you to make decisions more fluidly. So I almost think that a better, a better saying would be like gamify your life. Yeah. Find like, all the hacks. Yeah. Like, like, uh, and, and look at your life as a fantastical adventure journey that's that's it it's not to gamify your life it's look at your life as some kind of fantastical adventure journey where you're the superhero remember like when you're a little kid and you're like i want to be a superhero and you're not taking it so seriously but it allows you to move with a kind of freedom that just holding on too tightly doesn't yeah chris ryan once said if you grip sand too tightly in your hand it slips right through yeah it's it's Ironic, but that's what most of us are doing all the time. Yeah, you're about to say something great. Well, I was thinking about how you said life is serious. Life is serious, but most of the shit that we think is serious isn't. You know, (laughs) we're so caught up in all these things that we think are important. And when you're about to die, like when you're 80 and you're laying in bed, you're going to think back on all the things that seemed really serious and important. And you'd be like, wow, I actually missed out on the actual serious things because I was so distracted. Yeah. You know, and that's no good. Yeah, then you suffer twice. Then you suffer twice. Right. And then you're done. Yeah. yeah. Do you, how do you balance not kind of skitzing out on all the swells that you need, that you want to go on and like all the places you want to see? How do you not constantly live in some kind of anxious future state? Or is that something that you struggle with? Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with that you you know i struggle with it because you've watched me freak out about a swell that i'm missing right now and yeah and yeah i do i went on two mountain bike rides today i saw the most beautiful mountain nature you can imagine and And you and you had a friend texting you from a far off island halfway around the world telling me that this swell that i've been waiting for for six months is happening and there's no flights going there right now i mean i have like terminal end stage fomo pretty much all time but I don't let it ruin my day. I freak out, and I think Kilty and my my family, they know that I'd probably be a little happier and a little healthier if I didn't worry so much about what I'm missing. But on the other hand, I'm never, like, actually grumpy. I'll say, like, I'm so grumpy right now because I can't fly such and such for this swell, and then I'll just go jump on a mountain bike and Mm. not actually grumpy. Do you feel like it really steals days from you? Like, if you can't go on a swell... Or something. Do you feel like there will be a whole day that will be ruined because of that? It's funny. It's 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 not while the swell is happening. It's like four days before when I'm trying to figure out if I can go, and I'm just like obsessing about the logistics, and I know that they're not going to work out, and I keep trying to find a way to make it happen. And then when I finally 
haven't flown out and I know it's now too late to get there, then I just forget about it. But it's like that week before where I'm trying to figure out how I can make it work. Hmm. I wouldn't say it steals days, but it steals a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah. And I know this is Day, unhealthy. Days are made of hours, my yeah, friend. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's hard because I know it's ridiculous. And I mean, if this is the worst problem in my life that I can't get to a swell... I mean, I'm extremely fortunate. I think we're all extremely fortunate. But I'll even freak out because I can get to a swell, but I can't get to another swell at the same time. You know, that's, <laughs> that's ridiculous, right? But uh, you want to, if, if you have the opportunity to be anywhere, you want to be in the best place possible. And so on the one hand, I tell myself, like, let's make sure we're in the best place possible. But then if you can't, you need to make sure you're making the best of what you are doing. Mm. And so... While I, I do suffer from a lot of FOMO, I don't think that I let it interfere with my ability to enjoy what I'm doing. Maybe done, for a few minutes, though, maybe. Have you ever done a silent meditation retreat? Uh, not a retreat. I've really wanted to. I want to do like a seven or ten day silent meditation retreat, and I've never done it because I was afraid I'd miss a swell. Ooh. I know. I know. I'm you just totally scratched aware. at your soul. Yeah. And not just a swell. I won't be able to go exercise. I won't be able to run around. Like what if somebody calls me and they're like, Hey, we're going rafting or something, you know, like, and I've been wanting to do this for ever since I started practicing yoga, which is 20 years you ago. Put a silent meditation like on a swell forecast. Oh, I lose, I lose my shit. Just wondering what's happening, you know? Uh, and, and, but like, this is like moments. The numbers are 24 at seven silence. Silent. You can't even look at the numbers cause you can't <laughs> think about anything. You're not supposed to read. You're not supposed to do anything. Oh, my friend do it. It's amazing. I know. I it's really amazing. want to. I, I, I broke my arm. Uh, and I had that time off. So I signed up for a week long silent meditation retreat. That's, that's pretty clever justification. Like if I get really injured, I'm definitely doing one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wait, wait till you get injured <laughs> or don't. I mean, it, the, the thing with the, with the silence is that it removes all distraction, right? Like you're just sitting there and you have to deal with your mind mm. with no distraction and and can't even exercise, um, which is, it's a really, it's just like pressing pause on life for a little bit, if that makes sense. Like it, you're, it it's, does, it's like it, you're still lucid and you're still here and you're thinking about all, all this stuff in the past and the future, but you're starting to realize that you're thinking about all this stuff in the past and the future. And it's, um, there's a sweetness to it that I've never felt in other parts of life when I'm doing things. Uh, I imagine it must be incredible. And I wonder if another reason I haven't done it is because it's like very hard for me to be silent. Like I talk a, a lot and I have a lot of energy and I just can't imagine. I mean, I can see the benefit of it. And at the same time, I can't imagine sitting still for seven days. Yeah. I lose my mind. It's Jedi tricks. It, it's something. I think the closest I've gotten oh. is spending, you know, like a week at a time walking through the woods and I've I've done a bit of trekking by myself, so you're not necessarily doing silent meditation because you talk to yourself. And you're well, doing something. I talk to myself. You're doing something. Yeah, but being disconnected from all the things we yeah. worry about that, again, aren't that important. Dude, I'm looking- It's very refreshing. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to on this trip doing some solo treks. Yeah. I'm going to pick up a, a bivy and a um, backpacking backpack. Be like Cheryl Strayed from Wild. Oh, I highly, highly recommend that to everyone. I mean, just to be 
on like I find like for two, three days, I'm freaking out and thinking like who's been texting me and what's happening in the news. And then it's around day four that you stop thinking about it. And then when you come back, you're like, you don't want to look at your phone. You don't want to sleep in a bed. You don't want to be around people. And you're like, oh, I finally tapped into it. Yeah, you tap into a different frequency. Yeah, it's amazing. The mind can go places when it's on that frequency that it can't otherwise. The author Yuval Noah Harari, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Apologies if I didn't. He wrote Sapiens. Yep. He'll do three months of silent meditation or silent meditation every year three months straight not always straight not always straight but uh every single year he he just takes that time off of work and is is silent and he said he couldn't have written a book that big which is about the history of humans amazing um, if he didn't have that silence yeah my uncle's girlfriend is very into vipassana meditation she does two or three ten days per year 10-day silent meditations, and she's been trying to get me to go for years. And, I mean, I've signed up numerous times. I'll, I'll admit, I've, like, signed up for two or three meditation retreats, <laughs> and then I bailed because a swell popped up. Like, how bad is that? <laughs> it's it. terrible. Oh, it's the best. It's the best, man. But your your addiction takes you out into a starry sky with a vast mountain beneath it. Yeah, it's it's pretty good out here. I think that it's, um, you know that you know that quote. Anything you uh, what is it? Um, anything you hold too tightly will destroy you. Yep, I think that's true about life. I think that if you that it really doesn't actually. There are certain activities that are more destructive than others, but if you can look at it. If you can look at your activities from a point of of fierce engagement while also looking at yourself from the outside yeah which with is a sense, meditation. with a sense of humor um, that that seems to me to be the only way that you can live life without miserably suffering well it's also i don't know it's hard to because you use the word addiction and I agree it's it's easy to see destructive addictions, you know, like, oh, alcoholism for those who suffer from it is like very destructive and drug addiction and gambling addiction. And then like, it's also easy to tell yourself that being addicted to exercising and spending time in nature isn't that bad. But anything that contr- that you allow to control your life instead of you controlling it, you know, it might not be that healthy. Hmm. It's just easy to tell yourself it is because it makes you fit and and you're by a campfire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The school of life is hard, my friend. It is. I, I don't know that anyone has really figured it out, but it's a f- fucking adventure. Well, if it were, if it were easy, it wouldn't be an adventure. Would yeah, it? that yeah. goes back to what you're saying about like being on a bus, looking at all these other people who are on each of their adventures. Yep. And there's this scope of human emotion that every one of them is experiencing at any time. And I think that like, I'm not religious, but I do think that that idea of heaven and hell probably at probably initially came from this idea that you can live in a heaven or a hell inside your skull every day. Yeah. You're every day you're making choices, whether you're creating a heaven, you know, like whether, whether it's a philosophical heaven, whether you're creating a paradise, 
in the people that surround you, whether you're making their lives better mm. or you're, you know, we're literally creating hell by doing destructive things to ourselves and other people. It's crazy. And why would we choose to do that? It's so weird that we would be evolutionary, evolutionarily set up to try and make people feel the way that we feel. Hmm. Yeah. What? Why? Like, well, what? they say misery loves company, right? Yeah. Like, it, there's nothing truer than that. You see people who are unhappy and they just want you to be unhappy. And so what if we could all just be happy and healthy and we want everybody to be that instead? Yeah, That'd and it great. really and it really does build on itself too. Like you meet happy athletic people who are also successful and have a good friend group. Like there's this kind of stepping stone that occurs, stepping stone kind of philosophy, right? Where like you get you're around a positive person who then wants to give you more opportunities because they enjoy being around your positivity. Yep. And you're feeding each other's positivity. Yeah, we're social creatures. Are you impacted a lot by by other people? Like how do you how do you curate your friend group or like people who you decide to go on trips with? Because that's another thing about travel that we haven't really talked about. It's not so much the place that you go, but the people that you meet. Yeah, I'm very like, very selective about the people I Well, I mean, I'm I won't say I'm very selective. I will welcome anyone on a trip as long as they're a kind, humble person. Mm. Um, you know, I get to travel with a lot of pro surfers, and I don't travel with most pro surfers because I don't think they're that great. And then there's people <laughs> that are great, and they're the ones I do trips with all the time, you know? Yeah. I don't want to be with people who are negative, who, you know, treat the locals poorly or treat the service people who are giving us services poorly. I don't want to be with people who are comparing themselves to other people or, you know, being, being a dick to a kook, like be nice to kooks, you know, like we're all, we've all been kooks and we're all kooks at different things. And so, yeah, like that's another thing I've been very fortunate with magic seaweed is that they let me choose who I travel with and Mm -hmm. who I invite on trips. And it's not that big of a circle, but they're all really quality people. And I'm pretty stoked about that. Yeah. Because they add a lot to my journey as well, you know? Absolutely. It's it's the conversations that you have along the way, right? You're surfing the wave for as long as you can, but realistically, it's going to be a small fraction of the whole trip. The rest um, of the time, you're figuring out places to eat and if, you know, where you're going to stay and who's going to share what bed with whom and uh, who's going to sleep in the board bag. Like, those those domicile situations when you're in a developing country oh, yeah. far away from home in a place where there's no surf industry and you're like, um, yeah, so we're here. Can you, can you open up and... Uh, like house us yeah give please. us a piece of floor to lay on it's it's awesome man i mean i've been on surf trips where like you literally knock on someone's door and you're like hey can we sleep in your hammock we'll we'll give you some money oh man it's it's, it's and especially <laughs> when you don't have all the logistics set yeah up, so and you're not spending a lot of money you meet the best people you meet the best people and yeah. when, when you're with other other surfers or just friends who are going to be like yeah this is an adventure and even if we get skunked i'm psyched because i realize how lucky i am it's going to be a great trip yeah and i think i think 50 years from now when we're looking back at you know we've been very fortunate and able to travel and have adventures we're not going to remember any of the waves you know the waves are what take us there yes but it's that's that's just you know a motor that gets us there it's it's the experiences it's the people we meet that's what we're going to remember and that's what's going to shape us and i think it's important to bear that in mind because we can become very myopic when we're chasing swells Mm. and we're like oh let's 
you know, oh, the waves weren't as good as I hoped. This this Fuck this stuff. trip was ruined. You know, onshore wind. No, some of the best trips I've ever had is because we got skunked. And then you go search something else out, and you're like, oh wow, there's this amazing culture, full of beautiful people who are almost always embracing you and, and welcoming you into their homes. Yeah. And like, oh, who cares if you get barreled? Yeah, I, I've always done that, man. I always, I, just because my family is filmmakers, I would always bring a video camera on all my trips. And I'd be like, sweet, I want to make a movie. You got lifetimes of memories on. But not even probably. about the surf stuff. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like start interviewing people and you're like, whoa, there's some interesting stories here. And you can do some, if you go on a surf trip and you look at the place with a journalistic eye, you will come away with an interesting story. Even if it's never published anywhere, yep. I think that moving through the world with a writer's eye forces you to look at it more vividly and find analogies and metaphors and links and and just be more thoughtful about the day. Do you um, think it's um do you think that it's more pure to travel like we used to, like when I was in college, this is before I did any of the surf journalism, before I could chase swells whenever I wanted. Mm-hmm. I'd go to Baja, like every time I had a three-day weekend because I was going to school in California, I'd go to Baja and I just got skunked over and over and over again because I was just going when I had free time. Mm-hmm. And there's something nostalgic about those trips. Like those were the best trips. I met crazy people. I had amazing adventures. And now it's like you only go on a trip when the waves are going to be perfect. Right. And like where's that that pure experience, you know, where you're just going to see what you find. Yeah. I think that going to see what you find is, uh, in less stress inducing because if you're going to chase a swell, you have high expectations. Expectation kills yeah. everything. Yeah. So you can still be with positive people and you're like, that's awesome. Let's do it. But you're like, whoa, we just bought tickets two days in advance to fly halfway around the world and now it's it's not actually that good or it might be good but not as good as you hope well you miss also if you're just going on the adventure you're not as you said like you're not myopic you're looking for the adventure you're seeing everything around you that teaches you ultimately about life like traveling i i i always say this like if you're a pro surfer traveling the world you're not exper- you're not traveling really. No. You're not. Like I know people who have traveled to fucking pro servers who have traveled to 50 countries, they can't name one of those presidents or cultural customs. Yep. They have no idea what's happening in the world in that country. They have no idea what the people are going through. They're staying at the hotel, they're surfing the wave and they're going home. Right? So even on a selfish level, if you want to just grow as a human into a grown man or woman, you want to experience what it's really like to get like, like, I don't know where this bus is going and I don't yeah. speak much Spanish and I'm alone. You know, like that, that's a growth opportunity. Well, Greg Long and I were talking about it the other day and we we're trying to figure out what we're going to do when this whole travel restrictions are done. And he was saying, you know, like, we travel so much. We go into so many amazing places. We don't have any adventures. Like if you look at a swell chart, you know exactly what the waves are going to be when you get there. You've mm. got everything lined up. You fly there. You score epic waves and you go home. The only variable is if the wind goes on shore or not. Yeah. Like he wants to do some badass shit down in Baja. And he was telling me about a book of this couple that paddled from California all the way to Central America mm. in a canoe down the coast of Baja in Mexico in the 1930s. Yeah. This is like 
real adventure. Like pro surfers, we don't. We're yeah, not, we're not going on dude, adventures. I, you know, I, I did a podcast with a dude who who uh, kayaked down. He what what was it? Oof, I'm sorry if I get if I got all this wrong, but like it was, I think it was down the whole coast of California. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it was just solo kayak trip, sleeping on beaches. Boom, boom, boom. That's epic. Yeah, it was a, it was a sick podcast too. It's called How How to Kayak California or something like that. And he was just like, dude, I saw the craziest shit. And he he's a spear fisherman. Yep. So he just dive, um, and you know he'd catch some food there. But it's yeah, I I uh, to be perfectly honest, man, this has been one of the best trips of my life, far and away. And I'm not surfing. But it's like I'm on a I'm on an adventure. I'm in my Subaru, Jody Forrester. Jody Forrester. Just her and I galloping along, eating, eat, pray, love, hanging out with with Matt, mountain biking. Yeah, coming away with sore bums. Pretty fun, man. And I think if we're able to let go of that, I mean, we're obviously obsessed with surfing. Like that's what we've done our whole lives. But when you're able to let go of it, you find new roads to go down. You know, I remember a trip I did in Baja three or four years ago and we watched this guy crash his car right in front of us mm. flipped it. I thought he was dead. This old Californian guy that is an expat lives in Baja and we helped him and we saved his dog and helped him get home. And he told us, Hey, next time you're in Baja, come to the Bay of LA, uh, Bahia de Los Angeles. I've literally driven past the turnoff to Bahia a hundred times in the last 15, 20 years. And I've never once thought of going over there. And then since then, every trip I do to Baja, we go for waves. And then we spend a week with this guy. We dive with whale sharks. He cooks us massive fish dinners. He's one of our best friends now. And he's this amazing person because for once we're able to just stop being so stuck on whatever we're stuck on and opening ourselves up to something new, Mm. you know? That's what you're doing right now. You're just, you're like, oh, here's a different experience. Let's go do it, dude. I th- yeah, I feel so lucky. It's I epic. feel so lucky. Uh, where can people get in touch with you? Um, I mean, I'm on Instagram, but I post like once a year because I don't really care. But I think it's Matthew Rote, M A T T H E W R O T T, and then um, you can go on Magic Seaweed and you can have a look at the stories, and they connect to my Instagram. And that's about it. I try to stay. Actually, on Magic Seaweed, it doesn't, my name spelled differently because I didn't want people to know my name, but oops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm happy to know you. Yeah, dude, this has been a great yeah, time. You're a wild man. I'm pretty sure we'll have a few more wild adventures before yeah. we're done. Oh, life. We're doing podcasts out under the stars. We saw a fox. And a shooting star. And we spilled oil all over the car. What a day. We spilled olive oil all over the car. And I went fishing, which was tranquil, a little boring. Still deciding whether or not I love fly fishing or not. (sighs) You're going to get one eventually. (laughs) Definitely. I fucking haven't (laughs) caught a fish yet, dude. I've done it like a bunch. It's (laughs) It's super frustrating. Fuck, I'm, I'm like, I, I mean, normally I approach sports with a lot of intensity, but they're intense sports. So I don't know what to do with fly when fishing because it's like, there. I just got to stand there and like glide this fly into the water and watch it like drift by. And I'm like, okay, it's going to be sick when a fish comes and gets it. I'm just like, doesn't do it. Well, I'll tell you what, your frustration uh, is like, 
equal to my entertainment for every time you don't get a fish. So at least one I'm of us happy. is having fun. Dude, not only that, I have a buddy named Kevin who's up in the north of Colorado who taught me how to fly fish, or he like showed me the first few times, and he like sends me these mean texts like Kyle's an avid fly fisherman who has yet to score a fish. <laughs> He's a Dude, dick. He sounds such a epic. dick. He's like, ugh, cutting at my soul. Ah. Uh, Matt Rott, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kyle. That's our show. I'm going to play out the song called Flashing Lights by Sourgrass, and I will link to their band page in the show notes below. If you are a musician and you want to send me some tunes, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I will link to your band page in the show notes below. Maybe send some new people your way. Uh, you can also head over to my website, kyle.surf, or just click the link in the description below to sign up for my weekly newsletter. If you want to get updates about podcasts or uh, my latest articles, I'm writing quite a bit, and I, all, and I always post it on kyle.surf so if you'd like to get updated with that kind of stuff you can sign up for the newsletter that's also where you can check out the box of goodies which is freaking awesome by the way reading is what will what is what's the quote reading is the nourishment that reading is the nourishment from which i great ideas come i like that it's like it's like the manure for brilliance. That's the way that I think of it. So if you want to get more reading in your life, if you want to support this podcast, if you want to support Santa Cruz Medicinals, uh, head over to kyle.surf slash box goodies for your subscription. That's it for now. Uh, you can send the voice memos to info at kyle.surf. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, some details about your surroundings. And that's it for now. I'm off into the great unknown into the wild got my bear canister got my bear spray got my sarah mclaughlin cd i mean i got my fly fishing pole because I, I do manly shit um all kinds of manly shit i don't listen to sarah mclaughlin by myself and cry that's not something i would ever do all right i gotta go that's it for now have a beautiful day Screaming.
shout.